You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Recently, news surfaced that Russian operatives used social media in a massive influence campaign to affect American voters during the last presidential election. They paid for ads on Facebook and on Google and created vitriolic messages on both sides of a political divide to help widen that political gap. For instance, think of images shared around social media that vilify football players for kneeling during the national anthem and, conversely, images that promote the, quote, take a knee campaign in favor of those same athletes. Reports suggest the Russian campaign used the two sides of the coin to amplify and embolden how we feel about politics and ultimately divide us as Americans. Is this Russian strategy of disinformation new with the dawn of social media, or is this just another chapter in a long book of the Russian government using information as its greatest weapon against its adversaries? Here to talk about that is Scott Chain. He's a Washington bureau reporter for The New York Times. He lived in Russia from 1988 to 91 and wrote a book about it. More recently, has written about the Russian hacking and leaking in the U.S. election and on the Russian use of Facebook and Twitter. Scott is also an old friend of mine from our days in the Baltimore Sun newsroom, which now seems a million years ago. <laughs> Scott, <laughs> welcome to Detroit today. Stephen, thanks so much. Great to see you again. Yeah, no, it's really good to see you as well. Uh, let's talk about uh, this this influence campaign. I mean, I th- you know, governments all over the planet use information as a weapon and in their uh, espionage uh, activities. The Russians, I guess, uh, were learning at least, seem to be taking that to a different space or maybe a more heightened space, uh, one that is more obvious to us uh, in our in our politics. Explain what it is that we're seeing and whether it is indeed something that's new or is it just something that we're becoming more aware of? Well, you know, the history here is pretty interesting. The, the Soviet Union um, used information uh, you know, every day, uh, and partly to kind of uh, control and uh, limit the exposure of its own population, but also it experimented uh, re- on a regular basis with uh, what the president of the United States now calls fake news. So, for example, just to take a, a prominent example, uh, the Soviets planted around the world usually in in sort of minor publications in uh, developing countries, they'd start with that, Uh, a story that the AIDS virus had been cooked up by U.S. scientists, Army scientists, at Fort Detrick in Maryland, and that AIDS was a result of a, you know, kind of a U.S. experiment gone wrong. And that did get some pickup and traveled around the world some. But I think what's changed since those days is... um, is the tools that we have. We got the internet now and we we have social media. So, you know, the the picture of what the Russians did in the US election is still, you know, being filled in. Mm-hmm. But what's pretty obvious is that they used many different tools. It, you know, I have the I have the image of sort of a a bunch of people sitting around a table <clears throat> sort of brainstorming and coming up with different ideas. I'd say the most effective one by far was what everybody knows about, the hacking into mostly Democratic targets, stealing emails from the DNC, Democratic National Committee, and from John Podesta, 
Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign chairman and dropping those into the uh, into the sort of political uh, idea stream mm-hmm. that had a huge impact, partly because it was it was real information and it was new information, and there were hundreds of political reporters ready to pounce on it and and sort of you know write it up for, um, for in mainstream publications. But on social media, we found more recently the Russians were also very active, and they'd created these webs of uh, imposter Facebook pages, Twitter feeds. Instagram comes into it, YouTube comes into it, and generally speaking, they posed as either individual Americans or um, maybe more uh, effectively as interest groups, activist groups, uh, you, you know, kind of across the board. We, we still haven't seen them all, but just from those that we have discovered, you see a page called Secured Borders, which was basically pretty vitriolic anti-immigrant stuff. And, you know, perhaps in a sense on the other side of the political spectrum, you had Blacktivist, which was a, a pretty radical black activism site promoting Black Lives Matter and, and uh, anti-police stuff. So, you, you know, and, and sometimes you look at this stuff and you sort of scratch your head and you say, what were they thinking? Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it easier to, to get Americans to respond to this kind of stuff now than it used to be? In other words, does social media make it uh, more uh, get, make it more accessible for the Russians to be able to, to sort of manipulate people this way? I mean, uh, 20 years ago, you couldn't have just put up a, a site or, or a Facebook page. Uh, and people are so emotional and so hot on social media anyway uh, that it seems like sort of the perfect storm for them to be able to do this. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. In a way, news used to be more of a spectator sport. You know, you'd, you'd turn on the TV or, or pick up the paper and uh, receive it passively, maybe write a letter to the editor once a month. <laughs> uh, and now you can kind of pop on there and, uh, you know, every man and woman, uh, you know, essentially can become a, a sort of broadcaster. Uh, so there's, there's that participatory element that didn't exist before and the kind of instantaneous part of it. And, of course, um, you know, we, we live in a very polarized, very divided country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of my, my colleagues have a story in the Times today uh, pointing out that most of the material, the raw material that the Russians used for these social media uh, pages and feeds was actually harvested from Ameri- you know genuine American activists. <laughs> uh, so, some of it fake, some of it real, some of it they changed a little bit. But you, you know, th- there's there's a lesson in that, which is you know in a way they're kind of pushing on an open door here. And I I guess I'm inclined to think uh, that this we don't know the full dimensions of the Russian operation, but in terms of the social media part of it. I do wonder what percentage it added to the kind of cacophony of, um, you know, very strong feelings being expressed for and against Clinton, mm-hmm. for and against Trump, and all these on all these other issues. Um, you know, I'm sure they they did their part, but I but I'm not sure it was uh, was very significant. Yeah. 
Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Scott Shane, a Washington Bureau reporter for the New York Times. Lived in Russia from 1988 to 91, wrote a book about it, and more recently has written on the Russian hacking and leaking in the U.S. election and on the Russian use of Facebook and Twitter. He was part of a team at the New York Times that won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting called Russia's Dark Arts. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, we're having about Russia and its role in American politics, the role it wants to play, the role maybe it did play in the 2016 presidential election. Give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we will work you into the conversation. Also, tell us what you think we ought to do about this. Is there something the government ought to be doing to counter this? Is there something that Facebook and Google, who are making money really off of the Russian efforts, uh, should they be uh, a little more vigilant in the way that they push back against this stuff? Again, 313-577-1019 is that number. Uh, Scott, I want to ask you about that. You know, um, what are the things that we should be doing that we're not doing to try to prevent this kind of foreign influence. I mean, in some ways, as you say, they're really sort of pushing on an open door in the sense that that we're already at each other's throats about these things. But they are making it worse uh, or trying to. And it is a foreign actor uh, dipping into to domestic politics, which is something we tend not to think is OK. How, how do we how do we fight that? I mean, that's a great question, and it's one that I think Congress is is beginning to wrestle with and the intelligence agencies have been struggling with, and now the social media companies are, are thinking harder about. Um, you know, one of the striking things about the social media part of this is that it took months and months for Facebook to publicly acknowledge that it had identified 470 uh, profiles and pages Facebook pages that it could trace directly to uh, a kind of shady Russian company with the name Internet Research Agency that basically is sort of a troll farm that is has close ties to the Kremlin and has carried out propaganda uh, campaigns uh, on, beh- on behalf of the Russian government. The, the reason they were able to trace that is apparently the Internet Research Agency, this Russian company, paid for ads. And they could actually, there was a money trail there. But... As Mark Zuckerberg, uh, the head of Facebook, has acknowledged, they don't know if that's all that Russia was doing. <laughs> and in fact, if, uh, if the Russians used a U.S. credit card, some kind of American cutout, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for uh, the you know, company to figure out who's Russia and who's real. And so that's very worrisome because presumably there's a learning curve here. And if the Russians are back... Uh, for 2018, or especially for 2020, in terms of influence our elections, uh, they may be much better at this and much better at hiding their tracks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is the goal here uh, for the Russians? And when I ask that, I guess what I'm asking is, is this uh, is this the Russian government saying that it wants to play this role in our elections, or is this other kinds of sort of rogue independent actors who happen to be Russian uh, who are who are trying to influence our elections for for other reasons. I mean, is this a coordinated 
strategy of the Kremlin, or is this just people who've figured out that they can do it? Well, there's a little bit of a debate about that, but I think it's probably a fairly strong consensus that this is a, at least a loosely coordinated Kremlin-directed campaign. And uh, the point of it is that Russia is actually a fairly minor power in economic terms and military terms. The Russian defense budget is somewhere around the uh, $65 billion that Donald Trump proposed increasing, just the increase in the U.S. defense budget. (laughs) So, uh, you know, Putin, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, has been pretty clever about looking for ways that Russia can punch above its weight. And cyber, this whole sort of cyber influence world is a very cheap way, and the Russians are quite good at it and have been historically. And I think, you know, it's it's a great question, what is the Russian goal here? I think there was a short-term goal. Putin really could not stand Hillary Clinton. He blamed her um, you know, probably uh, wrongly for encouraging uh, the the anti-Putin demonstrations in uh, in Russia in 2011. Really had no use for her. Thought it, thought she was hawkish and so on. And of course, Donald Trump was saying nice things about Russia. So, so part of the the, the sort of short-term strategy certainly seemed to be to damage Clinton, to to give a hand to Trump. But the broader campaign is. Uh, I think to damage the image of the U.S., the image of U.S. democracy, because Putin does not want Russians to, uh, you know, his own citizens to sort of take up uh, U.S.-style democracy as a model. Uh, that would be very bad for him. <laughs> it would. And uh, and ditto for his neighbors. You know, he considers, uh, you know, what the Russians call the near abroad to be his backyard, to be sort of his zone of influence. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't want countries like Ukraine or Estonia or Georgia or Eastern Europe, Poland, you know, to um, to take up the idea of uh, let's be like America. So to the, to the degree that he can help the U.S. look extremely divided, gridlocked, a sort of cauldron of, of, of hatred, uh, you know, it's it very much plays to his long-term term game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, I, I want to be sure, though, I ask you about hacking into the voting uh, system here in, in America. There was some talk about that during the 2016 uh, campaign. People seemed very worried about it. Is that a real possibility and threat? It is a very real threat. I mean, I guess in a weird way, the U.S. electoral system is protected by its own uh, chaos because, um, as you know, the uh, you know elections in this country are organized at the local level. So there are a bunch of local officials and state officials, and they have their own rules. And so it means that there's no consistency across the board. You, you might be able to break in um, to, to one set of voting machines here, but you won't be able to do it in the neighboring town or the neighboring state. Right. But, uh, and, and the authorities so far certainly have found no evidence that the Russians managed to change any vote totals. But there is some concern. Uh, my colleagues looked at Durham, North Carolina, for example, that what the Russians are believed to have done there could potentially have done something like 
um, mark me as having voted when I hadn't voted yet. So right. I show up at the polls and they say, you already voted. Right, right. And so there is still some residual concern there might have been an effect. Yeah. All right, Scott Shane, Washington Bureau reporter for the New York Times. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Real pleasure being with you. Absolutely. It's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow again from NPR Studios here in Washington. This is 101.9 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.